listening to the best bits of the Breakfasters from 3RRR. You are listening to the Breakfasters podcast for the shortened week of June 13 to 16. Uh, we kick things off on a high with Ben Mendo Mendelssohn. He came in to speak about his uh, new film Una and or Una, sorry, and a few other bits and pieces. The fact that he's a long time RRR listener. There you go. And also we had a chat about the dilemmas of whether you should keep cash or hand it back if it comes your way. Mm. And also we had a chat to Kate Cole Adams on her book Anesthesia, The Gift of Oblivion and the Mystery of Consciousness. And speaking of mysteries, we talked about the strange things that happen when you go into shops, buying clothes and other stuff. And then we talked to Anna Crean about her quarterly essay on coal, coral and Australia's climate deadlock. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. You're listening to Breakfasters here on Triple R with Jeff Geraldine and Sarah. Una is a new film directed by Benedict Andrews. He stars Rooney Mara alongside our next guest, actor Ben Mendelsohn. Welcome to Breakfasters. Hi, guys. Hi. <laughs> this is film. It's a much. It's a very nuanced portrayal of a sexually abusive relationship. A much more nuanced portrayal of a of a pretty taboo subject than we're accustomed to see. Is that what attracted you to the part? Um, what attracted me uh, at first was just the read of it. I found it in, uh, incredibly enthralling and uh, and very thrilling. I knew Rooney uh, Rooney Mara was going to do it, and also Benedict Andrews is a great Australian theatre director who I'd worked with. And it's based on the play Blackbird by David Harrell, which I think was performed by Jeff Daniels and Michelle Williams at one stage. Had you seen the play beforehand? No, no, I was completely unfamiliar with it. Um, so that first read was, that was when I went, oh, and uh, I've, it was a very quick yes from me. Did you have to go back to see the play to kind of understand your character a little bit more? Because other characters were added in, obviously, to bring this to film. Yeah. Uh, no, no, I didn't. No, and um, I, I just would have got um, if I think if I went and saw the play before I had to do it, I just would have felt um, uh, that you know uh, coloured by it, or that I wasn't going to be as good as that guy, or yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. all that sort of stuff. So no, I, I tried to come at it from uh, more or less just um, a clean slate. I felt we all <clears throat> sorry went and saw the film, and I, I felt that we all had different experiences around it um like your character especially you go from being a quite likable guy to being someone absolutely detestable yeah um you know i guess the question is how do you what what are some of the different reactions you're you're getting over this film look it 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 generally it keeps people talking for quite a while afterwards um i think because of the intensity of uh, the relationship between these two people and what um, my character, Ray slash Peter, because he's gone away and he did some jail time, changed his name, found a new life, Una comes and finds him. Um, The line he's putting forward is that, um, you know, I loved you and that this is... We had something incredibly special as opposed to... You know, I'm a pedophile and I, you know, this is what I do. Mm. Um, but that, I mean, that's the area that that play plays out in. That's what makes it so thrilling. So I, I'm glad that there's a lot of different reactions to it. Look, I know, um, I'm very aware of how we felt or how I felt in any case going in um, and I hope that that, uh, you know, I hope that that's there. Mm. I sort of touched on this before, but it is a very taboo subject. And it's probably you know one of the biggest social taboos that's out there. How did you go about preparing for the role? I mean, were you res- did, were you talking to people who had experience in this area or reading about pedophilia? No, 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 none of that. No, all I did was um, spend time with the um, the two actors that I was going to be having that. Um, that background with, and that was um, that was with Rooney, and that was with um, young Una, who um, uh, Ruby, um, and particularly with her and her family, just spending time there. But that's more just to get comfortable because we're going to do something that um, has heavy background vibe to it. Mm. 
And those those scenes were very intense. What was it like on the set then? I mean, as a working actor, can you just separate yourself from the intensity of the scene when the you know when the yeah. director says cut? Is that just the end of it, or is it well, something you've got to sort of march back from? You, you know, look, it depends, but but you there is a there is a separation, um, but it, it depends. You do the, some of the feelings and stuff sort of bleed away, if you like. Uh, and they can take a you know they can take a while they can be a bit of reverb, but that's you know that's the um, that's the job and and you get used to that. And although this film is you know got very heavy sort of subject matter, it's really the audience that feels this much you know and and that's as it should be. Um, I think for you know certainly for Rooney and myself we've um, you know had many years of doing. Um, doing this stuff so we don't take it on uh, in in quite the same way. I recently read uh, a piece that described your career as being in its purple patch that this is kind of you're doing all these amazing roles is that how you feel at the moment? It is a bit rolling in clover. <laughs> there, there, there is a bit of rolling in clover yeah. about it all. Uh, and it's, uh, it's, been, uh, yeah, it's been an awesome time. What's been the most satisfying role you think that you've played recently? Um, I don't, you know, for me, I, I don't even think of it as, as roles. For me, yeah, it's right. days, it's days at work and, and there are, and you know, there, there, it's, it's really about the film sets and making, and making the film. So the way I feel about doing them is, um, is kind of removed from the film themselves because it's a very, um. You know, it's an incredibly different sort of process actually making them to what they end up being. Um, and I, uh, yeah, I delight in making them, but um, but then I leave them alone. But are there any, are there any, I think of a character like this, which is, you know, a character that's hard to like in Una. Are there any characters you take with you a little bit and kind of don't want to let go of? <laughs> yeah, I guess. I, 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 I think they hang around in you in one way or another um, for, you know, for a while. You'll do things and it'll remind you of, you know, a bit in Star Wars or yeah. some... You know, oh, yeah, I know, I know. ...a certain <laughs> way and, and, and then you'll go, oh, shit, that's just like that. So they, they do kind of hang around in you. But, but um, you know, look, it, Animal Kingdom is, is the big one of, of uh, you know, of the modern the modern times that's mm. still a huge one there's there's a few of them place beyond the pines i um i really liked that guy uh i liked killing them softly too danny from bloodline was um was pretty good there yeah there's a lot of them that i like uh, you as we as you touched on you were just recently in rogue one the star wars film you're going to appear in steven spielberg's ready player one what's the difference between being on a huge blockbuster set like that as opposed to some of the Australian films that you just talked about, is it com- a completely different vibe or is it just just like going to work, like you said? No, no, it's, it's quite a different organisational vibe. Um, when you get down to the heart of it, like the, when you're there and with the other actors, the director, the camera, that's that remains pretty much the same, whatever you do. Uh, but the rest of that is more to do with um, how much distance you get Um like on a small film, you're right there a lot of the time, and on a big film, you are going way away to a little sort of caravan or whatnot, and you're hanging out, and you spend a lot more time waiting generally on big films, uh, and then the bits that you do tend to be sort of smaller. You know, you'll come on, you'll do this little bit, then you'll do that little bit, and in a smaller film, you'll shoot, uh, you know, often a number of scenes a day. You just. I- Sorry, you I've also uh, I've read that you don't watch your films after they're made. Yeah, is that a come from a place of um, are you too embarrassed, or is it like a um, oh my work my work there is done, I can't do anything to change it? And so it's both of them, you right. know. So it's both of them. So so um, I don't. I found that. And I watched my own stuff for a very, very long time. And then what I what I sort of realised is, you know, I'd I'd go, oh, I wish I didn't turn my head that way, or mm. or geez, you know, that, wish that bit was better, or I could have done, and all that sort of stuff, and obsessing over it. And I just sort of felt after a while that I was probably better off 
just doing them and then um, and then walking away and trying to do the next one. And it was really being on stage where I thought, oh, and you never get to see this, but you know, you can feel when it's working and when it's not. And so I kind of thought that um, that actually I might um, I might start to actually get better at it if I didn't go back in and try and. Um, you know, try and control little bits and pieces. Yeah. yeah, it's just about trying to control things that really are probably best left not controlled. Yeah. You know, you ran for ran through a list of um, Australian productions just before, and you know you've been kind of a mainstay of Australian cinema all the way back to the year my voice broke. What do you think the state of the Australian film industry is now? How does it compare with the past? Uh, look, you, I've been out of the country for a long time, so, so I'm unsure. I mean, the thing I do know about us is we tick along and we have, um, you know, we have periods where um, things seem to come together and be very satisfying for audiences and then we have periods where there seems to be a lot of lamentation <laughs> and frustration. <laughs> but what I will say about it, it by and large, is... For a country of, um, you know, for a country of our size and everything else, having a film industry has enormous benefits that aren't necessarily, you know, can't be reduced down in purely sort of the old style economic number crunching ways. There's enormous benefit to, to cultural exporting. Can I ask you a quick question that's totally off topic? But you were the narrator on the Gorillas record recently. Yeah. How did that come about? That's not off topic. That's just <laughs> well, it's you. You're the topic, aren't you? Um, um, so uh, Damon Auburn had seen um, uh, Bloodline and he'd seen a film called Start Up, which is a British prison film. Um, and he was, I go, or I guess he was a fan. So he sick. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was so racked. I was so racked. Yeah, I would have been. I was so racked. And so they, they, they. Um, did you, you get know, a call from Damon? Going? No, I band? didn't get a call. From, oh. I got a call. Well, I did get a call from Damon, but in the same way as when these things get bigger and bigger, it wasn't Damon calling me up. It was you know He's someone people. on behalf of Damon. And they said, "Do you want? To, will you come in and you know have a chat about this project?" And I'm like, "Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I will." Um, and so, uh, so you know, I went and uh, and yeah, did and it. So then oh, we just, did it. just did that, just on a gorilla's record. Just fine. A bit, just a bit. <laughs> um, you were saying before you came on air that you've been a long time listener of Triple R. Yeah, I have. Uh, is I guess you know what drew you to the station was hearing music in some capacity, but is that still a part of your life? Being able to kind of listen to music and engage now that you're living in another country and you don't have triple R, you could stream us, but I, no, and that's the thing you can stream it in the modern day. But yeah, no, music has always been. Um, it, it's always it's kind of you know, like it's a real toss up between music and films, which is my first love. Mm. I've never blurred the line by trying to be in music, but that thing of <laughs> <laughs> like you know that that's that thing that rock and roll stars want to be movie stars and people that do movies want to do rock and roll it's kind of pretty yeah it's it's true we do we all sort of love the other one but yes i'm a big music uh a big music listener i uh, i drop off every now and then but um but yeah i li- i'm always listening to music is there one artist that if you could be a narrator on their album you would choose to be right now oh boy Oh, I think Courtney and I could do a nice duet. Oh, you know? like, yeah. And I think I think the Melbourne voice as yeah. well would yeah. be nice. I'd be I'd be very thrilled to um, add in some. Mm-hmm. Somebody, <laughs> or some, you know, somebody's listening to that record. and they're going to make it happen. Oh, yeah. we can hook we can hook this up after yeah. the show. You know, I mean that because you know I I love her voice and and I love the way she speaks and everything and she's a you know it's a Melbourne thing and all that so yeah. I'd right. be down for that. Just Courtney, before, Barnett. before we let you go, you're now in a position you're getting scripts from all over the place. What do you look out for when you when a script I comes look at your them way? Like a form guide, basically. Uh-huh. So, so, so I read them and then you can feel whether or not you think they're shit or not pretty quickly. Uh, but then outside of that, I just look at who's going to be running in the race, what their <laughs> last <laughs> bunch of stuff is, you know, and your chance of success. So that's basically it. It's, it's whether or not it gets you sort of like going and then whether or not you think it's got a, a chance of going and being something, you know, good, fantastic, great, awesome, 
You're just trying to just everything in my artistic life is trying to get the the shitness down to as small as possible. <laughs> the current film is called Una. It's screening all over the place. We've been talking to Ben Mendelson. Thank you so much for coming in. Thanks, guys. Three triple R. Uh, you're listening to Breakfast. It's Sarah, Jeff, and Geraldine here. Um, and Lloyd. And Lloyd. Our favourite dog who makes noises during talk breaks. Yes. Cookie <laughs> 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 little Lloyd. Uh, so, um, long weekend. I decided um, on Sunday, I, I did a fundraiser about a, probably about a year and a half ago. For, so I can't even remember what it was for. Somewhere, <laughs> are you all right? You I just got a fright. Jeff, Lloyd, Lloyd just jumped up on my lap and I didn't know what it was. Oh, Obviously, right. it could only be the dog that was in the studio. falling off the chair. No, no, that's all right. Got a bit of a fright. <laughs> Sorry. So, I, anyway, I did this fundraiser about a year and a half ago. I can't remember what it was for, but um, as part of my payment, because it was a fundraiser, so I didn't necessarily get paid for it, I got given a voucher yes. for the pub where I was doing the gig. Are you happy oh. with that as payment? Yeah, yeah. It was in pub South voucher. Melbourne. That's all right. Hey? Pub voucher. That's yeah, good. yeah. Got a, yeah, mm. I'm very, very happy with that. Fancy pub, South Melbourne. Yeah. Probably is South Melbourne, so it's not often that I'm over ah, that side of town. Who ever goes to South Melbourne? What a strange suburb. Oh, no, I love it. <laughs> Do you? Shout out to all that yeah, South, yeah. South Oh, Melbourne no, nothing listening. against them. I just think, well, like, it's, it's not a... Uh, South Melbourne markets, mate. South Melbourne markets, that's why you go to South Melbourne. Boom. All right. Uh, also, I, I lived in South Melbourne for a bit. Did you? On, yeah. Oh. Lived on um, Clarendon Street so on the... Eating my words. Yeah, yeah. I loved it. Really? It's, I don't know. There's that kind of Albert Park, South Melbourne area I found it to be... Because I lived in Albert Park for a bit as well. Did you? A little bit of beach close to the city, though. That's it's great. Sweet. It's really great. But it had just like, I think Abbott Park had this kind of like village vibe in the, like yeah. I knew the ladies that worked in the post office. Oh, that's nice. Do you know what I mean? It was yep. really, it was nice. So it was nice it's to, nice. but having this voucher living, you know, I don't live near South Melbourne anymore. So not part of the village anymore. Not part of the village. So um, finding the time to go and use this voucher was difficult. Sure. Because during the week it was like, I don't want to drive all the way over to South Melbourne for steak night, you know, although it would, would be good. Um, so then, but having a long weekend, had Sunday free. I yes. went, Kath and I, I'm like, I said to Kath, I'm taking you out for lunch. <laughs> you can drive, but I'll, and I'll pay. <laughs> um, so we went, uh, went to this pub in South Melbourne and, um, it, and it was near the market. So I had a walk around oh, the markets lovely. as well, which is really cool. Um but we had lunch and I had this voucher and I had it for because I'd had it for about a year and a half. I was like thinking, is this gonna is this gonna oh, work? Maybe it's expired. Oh, yeah. that but I looked, thing. I checked I checked on it and I went, There's no expiry date or anything. And I thought, I'll test it, I'll just go and get a couple of beers first. And so I bought some beers, handed the voucher, the because it's like a little card, like a credit sure. card type thing. And the the guy swiped it, no problems, gave me the card back. Got two beers, went and sat down. Like, that's all right. Sweet. This is, we're all good to go. Um, and then, so ordered lunch, and then, like, it was a lot. We what ate. did you order? Steak, mate. Come on. Really? Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. I don't know. Yeah. Steak. Okay. Yeah, no, that's fair enough to ask that. But yeah, yeah we got the steak. All right. Um, and it was, it was lovely. And then I went in to pay for it. And because it was Sunday on a long weekend, it was very busy. And they were. Because all the footballers are out in South Melbourne on Sundays. Oh, true, yeah. They all live there. Yeah. Mm. I think, anyway. Yeah, there are a few footballers. In the village. In the village. In the village. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But I, um, yeah, went inside to to pay um, and then, so handed over the, the voucher. Uh, you know, no problems. And then they were putting it through and the, she kept on swiping the card and just going, oh, and swiping and, oh. uh, and I'm avoiding eye contact. Oh, my God. Swiping. What were you thinking? I'm just thinking, oh, we haven't figured this out. Were you thinking I might do a runner? No, no, I thought I'll just um, <laughs> I'll talk my way out of it, okay. <laughs> you know. But the I run done is there anything. is <laughs> in the background. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I hadn't done anything wrong at no, this stage. No. But was and she said and then she goes oh is this a voucher and I went yes and she went oh hang on, I think I have to get my manager 
And then she asked the guy that poured the beer, she asked him, and he's like, oh, you just do that. And he was of no help whatsoever. Oh. She's like, oh, okay. And then went off to get the manager. And then the manager came in and was like swiping it, swiping it, and kind of, you know, just she couldn't make it work either. And then. Had this, it worked previously during the beer situation, or the guy well, just overlooked it? Yeah, possibly. Ah. I reckon the guys, the guy that poured the beer has just gone. Sort that out later. Don't worry about it. So, but the manager, because it was so busy, and like there's other people trying to take orders, there's other people waiting. Because there's that eyes burning into the back of your head. Yeah, I'm I'm like, there's something on the TV, and I'm up watching that, just going, oh, yeah, this is fascinating. (laughs) (laughs) What is? Like, I'm sure it'll be fine. And I just hear it going, shit. Oh, and I'm just like, I'm so sorry. I'll just talk, we can talk this out. And then she just looks up and then she just opens up the till and just goes, there you go, it's $40 change and hands you the cash. What Um, are you talking about? And then I, so I took the change. Had had that also deducted your stakes from the card? Yeah, yeah. So it was like a $100 card. So I paid, yeah, yeah. Oh, you're smart. So I paid for the... Pay for the steaks and then, um, but didn't pay for the beers. And she just gave me cash and then. I can't believe she gave you cash. Yeah, I know. So, and I went, oh, okay. And then, you know, and then she kind of had obviously had to go up and serve other people and stuff. And I kind of, you know, there's all these other people waiting. So I just kind of took took the cash and 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 left. And then, but now I'm like thinking. Then did you do a runner? Well, no. What do you mean did a runner? <laughs> oh no, like, you were definitely not meant to get that forty dollars cash though. But she just sort of said, like, I can't be bothered with this anymore. Just take the money and get get away. Yeah, yeah. I think it was like, oh, just I know there's $100 on this. So rather than, like, just deducting the amount off the voucher and, like, writing down. Did she take the card back? Have you still got the card? No, no, no. They've got the card. Say, Jeez, Jeff. You could yeah. try. You could do it again. Yeah, <laughs> Come yeah. Back next week. Is that bad? What would you, you know? Oh, I think you did the right thing. If it was a pub that had one person in it, sadly sitting at the bar, absolutely, I'd... and was a bit run down, and you took the forty dollars, I would say probably that was the wrong thing to do. But oh. in a very full, bustling pub. I think take the 40 bucks. I, I don't see why you've done the wrong thing at all. You didn't do anything wrong. They gave you a voucher. You used the voucher. You got the change. This is where our Catholic guilt comes in. Yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just thinking all you've done is wrong. <laughs> you have to go and donate that to someone. Yeah. because Well, because it's, it's kind of... It, I don't know. Is it? <laughs> my mind instantly went, my instantly went to the scams. You could go. Maybe still got the card. You can go back and do it again. I oh, know. I just. I wish I could think more like you all the time. Sometimes, like I just because I, I kind of you know just went like there was this moment of oh sweet I've got you know we got I've got cash like it's just nice to have cash but then at the same time I'm like oh might did you give him a tip. No. no. Oh, that's what I should have done. Yeah, that would have ridded you of the guilt. Just like when you go to a confession so and you do a Hail Mary. That's what I need to do, yeah. isn't it? Go back $5 tip, that's five Hail Marys. But I can't go back now. It took me a year and a half to get over there in the first place. Oh, well, and you know what? Just, yeah. just live it up. I did. I bought the dogs some new beds. <laughs> Everyone's a winner. Yeah. Uh, on Triple R with Sarah Jeff and Geraldine. I would just like to say uh, that we were just talking previously about whether you give money back yeah. when you find it find or not. Find it or accidentally gets given to you. And I said, I told you guys that because of my Catholic guilt, I once found $150 in an ATM inside of a supermarket with a friend of mine when we were quite young and I really needed the money and I handed the money over to the supermarket and I really regretted that because I'm pretty sure the kid behind the counter just pocketed the money. I'm yeah. pretty sure this did too. But here's the thing. A week later, I won 50 bucks on a scratchy and I thought that that was karma. Um, right, so you got a quarter out, though, of it back. It? No, and no. I could have just been well, extra I don't rich. Know. I just found a mysterious deposit of a few hundred dollars into my bank. Okay, I'd suggest you don't take that money if it's a mysterious really? deposit. Maybe it's someone trying to bribe you. <laughs> I'm open. Anyone else wants to send mysterious money my way? Go for it. Okay, fair call. <laughs> Three. Triple.
you are on Triple R with Sarah Jeff and Geraldine. Uh, so you guys know how I've been playing for the practicing with the megahertz. Yes, playing my first ever community cup. Yes, you've been hearing about the trials and tribulations of uh, me trying to play football. The journey, yeah, <laughs> the training journey. <laughs> Who would have thought someone that loves footy so much is so shit at it? Didn't know that until recently. No, but it's been a good journey, and I'm getting much better. Uh, but on the weekend, I had to go and buy a uh, mouth guard for the big day. Oh, that's pretty serious. Yes, oh. it is serious. And I haven't. Oh, I think the last time I had a mouth guard was when I played hockey and. So, sorry, just to put a pin in that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, my nephew, when he was about eight years old, for some reason thought you could only get um, black mouth guards from Adelaide because he had. <laughs> what? <laughs> I know. Because he had a friend that, you know, had a black mouth guard and, he, and he'd got it from Adelaide. I don't know why. Like maybe. Like he'd been there. He'd been there or something. And he just. So he was. But in, in my nephew's head, he got it in his head that. That's the only place you could get them. And That's I was in strange. Adelaide doing some gigs and he's like, can you please, please get me a black <laughs> mouth guard? The main. And he's like, you can only get them in Adelaide. It's the main export <laughs> industry of South yeah. Australia. Black Churches mouth. and yeah. uh, black, black mouth, mouth guards. guards. That's so, so had, weird. So I had to go into a chemist in Adelaide, just a normal everyday chemist and get him, well, do you have mouth guards? Are they black? Yeah. Oh, well, it's honest, true. Well, when I was looking for mouth guards on the weekend, there were no black ones. So maybe well, there's something maybe in this. Is. Maybe. Well, I did oh, go. Send us a text. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if you have a black, black mouth yeah. guard. Uh, I went into this store, this sports store, and I was with Andrew, and I went up to the counter. And there's an older guy behind the counter. And Andrew kind of hung back at the start of it because he just wasn't, you know, he was just hanging yeah. around because we were doing some shopping, and I was just going to run in and get one and leave. And I said to the guy, I go, oh, um, I'm after a mouth guard. And he looks up and he looks at me and goes, oh, oh, yeah. And he looks over my shoulder and he yells at Andrew and goes, is it for you, mate? Oh, no. And I was like, oh. And Andrew was like, what? No, no, no. And he just kind of looked away. I mouth guard myself, mate. And, and, then I, and then he looked at me and he goes, oh, is it for your kid? And I went, <laughs> what? I was like, what? And I looked around me and I'm like, is there a kid next to me? And I was like, no, no. no. I said, oh, it's for me. And he's like, oh, oh, all right. I thought, did you just make up an imaginary person before you thought that I could be buying the mouth guard? It was so weird. I'm like, there's literally no child in the store. You Not just only, made up. You didn't wow. You didn't look at me and go, you'd be next. You looked at me and went, oh, there's an imaginary child. Maybe they need the mouth guard. It was so weird. That is weird. I was like, it's not 1965. But I felt he was an older guy, so I didn't. I didn't know how to respond. Like, you know, in some instances I might be a bit more like, come on, mate. Yeah. Like, so he goes for the boyfriend and then he doubles down. Then he doubles yeah. down by going for the imaginary child standing next to me. Uh, when you think of that, I've got a vision of the child. This is sort of ginger mix kind of yeah, totally. little scamp. <laughs> I was so weird, but I didn't know how to respond either because he was clearly a pleasant older man. Yeah. But I just, I was like, oh, I'll just leave it. You know, yeah, yeah. I, I won't. I won't kind of pull you up under anything. I, you know, did I think he ask like when? Did he ask things like, "Oh, when did you start using mouth guards in netball?" No. <laughs> no. <laughs> he just he, at that instant actually, there was a young woman next to him, and he kind of went, oh, "All right," and walked away. And she stepped up and so, you know got the mouth guard for me. So I think maybe maybe he felt like that was a bit. Wow, yeah, it was a really strange experience. But I don't know. Oh. It, it wasn't a bad shopping experience, but I just. Those weird interactions with shop yeah, people, where you're yeah. like, I don't want to be, I don't want to pull went, you up on this, but it's a bit with, offensive. With yeah. Steph, because um, you know she does boxing occasionally, and I went with her to the fight shop to buy what's a new helmet or a new gloves or or something, whatever. But um, they certainly didn't mistake me for the one. <laughs> <laughs> Was it like, the Paisley shirt? <laughs> <laughs> I'm a lover, not a fighter. <laughs> it's funny when um, during the we went to a women's match during the when the AFLW season was on, and we went to um, it was Carlton versus Melbourne, and we were, ended up sitting next to these really old school hardcore Carlton supporters. Yeah. That, just older, friendly men, um, but they were really into the game. Like you know, but a lot of surprise, kind of. Oh, well, oh, they're all right, aren't they? Yeah, yeah they're all right. Um, but at one stage, they were talking about how because no, it's true. You know, they've got to learn this new skill of you know bending over and picking up the ball and stuff because they, you know, you don't they don't do that in netball, and it's like. <laughs> 
so so hard to not don't say out loud. Actually, kind of. I actually, weirdly enough, I find that kind of endearing. Like that you're that. Yeah, I know. But it's because you couldn't get angry at him. No, because it was like no, you just so naive. So, yeah. This kind of you know in there. We lips. play other sports, oh, yeah. mate. It's not just netball. Is a is a. Great, a great sport, but women are into many, many diverse different sports, and it's not just netball. And the funny thing is, I'd been at this store a couple of weeks earlier to buy runners from it, and I was served by another uh, man, a little bit younger. And he, I told him that I was um, needing, I might have to come back to go buy some footy boots, and he was mm. so excited about. He's like, "Oh, who are you playing for?" And then he told me this really excited story about how he he works at a footy club. Uh, that has just started its women's team and it's awesome and there's so many women. They have more women than men who want to be in the team and they can't cater for them all. So I'd had this really interesting conversation with this slightly younger man at the same time. So store. you would have walked in there just going, yeah, yep, yeah I was I'm like, feeling I, I got home. this. Yeah. He wasn't uh, saying, oh, the high heels are over. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, but I don't know. It's just I find I, at the best of times I find those kind of um, shopping situations a little bit distressing, like having to speak to... You don't be asking for a new a size of clothing or something. I find any of those interactions a bit stressful. Yeah, yes, yes, because sometimes you're telling quite intimate detail to a complete random that you'd have nothing to do with in any normal circumstances. Yeah, yeah. It's like um, bra shopping. Um, I don't know, Jeff, if you're familiar, probably not. Not so much. (laughs) (laughs) But it's but I don't know. I get the like the kind of opposite with bra shopping. Like if I have a someone that comes over that's quite assertive in like, can I help you? Do you know what size you are? I'm a professional bra fitter, so I'm here if you need. My name's blah blah blah. Like I find it kind of much more. Oh, oh, yep, you can come in and. I actually like that. I think more often or not, it's. Me asking a, a person who works there, what, what do you think about this? And then going, I've got no idea. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> yeah. that's really no embarrassing. Idea. So I've yeah. just walked no, out of the change rooms for no reason <laughs> to show you this and you have no idea. Yeah. Uh, although, did you have that? I remember when I was like 13, I don't know if your mum used to take you shopping. You know that age where your mum still took you shopping and being 13 or 12 and her putting you in a pair of bathers, I remember going to this really oh, cool, like a really cool, like a surf, dive and ski, but mm-hmm. not that when I was probably year seven mm-hmm. and having to buy a pair of bathers. And I just was an awkward, that awkward age yeah. where you're like not quite a teenager, you're growing up a bit. So I wanted to look cool, but probably couldn't wear like a cool bikini. Mm. And her, me trying on a pair of bathers and saying, I don't know if this fit right or whatever. And her just swinging the door open and going to the guy that worked <laughs> at the counter. Do you have another, oh, you know, what, do you yes. have another, are these bathers made for young women or older women? And I was just, <laughs> I was like beetroot. And I'm like, mum. And then there was a girl in the store that she got to come over and pull bits of the bathers out, you know, like, oh, oh is it Anybody be, else in the shop oh, want to come and have a God. look? God. <laughs> With all the best intentions, but I was just, ugh. My mum, God. the door swinging, a mum used to just make me, like, she'd just stand in front of me, like, just go, just try them on here. No, not by the soap, not by the soap, but just like, I'm like, mum, I'm not going to stand here. She goes, it's all right, just get it, like, standing between clothes racks. Yes, totally. And just, it's all right, just put it on here. I'm like, I'm sorry. Just duck down. Yeah. Just put them on. Don't worry about it. Like, oh. Happy shopping. Three, triple, ah. You're listening to Breakfasters here on Triple R with Jeff Geraldine and Sarah Anesthesia. The Gift of Oblivion and the Mystery of Consciousness is a beautiful new book published by Text. Its author is journalist Kate Cole Adams. She's joining us now. Welcome to Breakfasters. Morning, guys. As I said, it's a book I enjoyed greatly. Very early on in it, you quote a passage from an introductory paper about anaesthesia on the University of Sydney website. One line from that really stuck with me. There is no way we can make sure that a given patient is asleep, particularly once they are paralysed and cannot move. That is an extraordinary line. Yeah, that really stuck with me too. And um, I actually tracked that 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 guy down who's an anaesthetist called Chris Thompson because I, I was like, how can you be saying this on a, on a university website? How can you be teaching people this? Um, and what fascinated me about him was that really he was saying what most anaesthetists know but don't say, um, which is that although they can do all sorts of amazing things and they've got all these great monitors, actually anaesthetists don't really know um, 
exactly what's happening to the patient when they're under because the patient is often paralysed and uh, even if something is going on, the patient often can't tell you about it. So for those that don't know what anaesthesia actually is, what's it made up of and what does that do to your body as far as we yeah, know? okay. <laughs> so... Uh, th- there's there's kind of these days there's it's it's quite a um, sophisticated cocktail, and there's three three main parts. There's the what they call the the hypnotic, which basically basically is the bit that makes you go to sleep or sort of sleep, but it makes you unconscious. And then there's um, really heavy duty painkillers, so analgesics, so that your body, you know, isn't actually trying to struggle too much with it. Mm-hmm. And then often, but not, not, not always, but often there's, there's a, a something that they call a, it's slightly euphemistically a muscle relaxant, which kind of sounds quite nice, but um, <laughs> it sort of, it, it, it relaxes the muscle so much that uh, you can't move at all. So essentially it's a paralytic, it paralyzes you. And there's all sorts of good reasons for that because um, you, you want patients to be really still. And in fact, you, you lose consciousness. And this is what that, that guy, Chris Thompson, he made that point. You lose consciousness uh, well before your body stops kind of moving around on the table. So, mm. uh, which again is really disconcerting. I found that yeah. disconcerting. Mm. The book's subtitled The Mystery of Consciousness. And I guess... In a sense, we can't really understand something that makes you unconscious unless you understand the whole idea of consciousness. And that's really one of the most vexed philosophical issues of all time, isn't it? What does it mean to be conscious? And that's really something your book explores. Yeah, and this is why the book that I set out thinking blithely oh, I reckon it will take me a year to research and a year to write, which was a fantasy even back then. <laughs> uh, but, you know, that, that was now 13 years ago. Uh, that's one of the reasons it took me so long because everything I looked at, it was just like pulling this piece of string and it just got longer and longer. And, yeah, I was like, well, I can't quite figure out what anaesthesia is because no one seems to agree. All right, well, let's work out what's unconsciousness. Um no one seems to agree. And, of course, until you've defined consciousness, which we kind of probably can't, uh, we're kind of... It is mysterious. And there's all sorts of things. I mean, there's lots of the science that um, we do now understand. Well, I, I don't understand, but <laughs> someone, someone <laughs> the people understands. who do understand it understand it. And a, a lot of people have tried to explain it to me in a lot of detail. And I have to say, I, my, my brain, I, I still don't... I still can't quite conceptualise a brainwave. But I think it's the advantage in some ways of coming in as a journalist or coming in as, as an observer that you don't have to know everything. But I, I did get to go, wow, there's so much that we don't know. And to come in and be the person who asks questions. Because one of the things that really kind of amazed me about anaesthesia was that not many people ask questions about it. No. No, I I've, I, I've been under anaesthesia maybe right under seven or eight times in my life. And reading this book, blew my mind for that very reason because I'd never bothered to ask my anaesthetist anything. How will this affect me? What's happening to me when I go under? How will I be after anaesthesia? And that kind of really surprised me a lot. I think it's just you kind of trust that the doctors and the anaesthetists know what they're doing and it's like... Oh, that's, you know, I don't ask how a plane works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You just hope for the best. I don't ask the pilot how he flies the plane before I get on a plane. I would I just totally kind ask of, him if I could. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just kind of have a lot of trust in it, I guess. Well, and I think that's a really good analogy between anaesthesia and, 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 and a plane mm. because, you know, in a sense, they kind of seem to go along pretty seamlessly. Um, but although there's a huge amount of technical know-how behind them, I... I suppose the difference for me is that a lot of people are scared of planes and they know they are uh, and, and they'll talk about it. Mm. And the thing about anaesthesia is people don't really talk about it. I mean, if you ask them yeah. about it, uh, people talk... I mean, I have people coming up to me all the time these days and telling me about their, their most recent anaesthetic, anaesthetic experience. And um, a lot of... A lot of those experiences aren't bad. Some of them are, are, are really funny. Uh, some of them are, are upsetting. But the thing that strikes me most is that I, I, f- I sort of feel that what happens in anaesthesia, because in a sense we're doing this trade and we're trading our consciousness, we give away our consciousness 
in order to be able to submit to, you know, possibly life-saving procedures uh, that we wouldn't otherwise be able to submit to. So, you know, it, it, it's a deal. But I kind of think in there, and because we don't remember what happens, that we kind of just forget that anything happened at all. It's like this, oh, that's mm. over. And, and we, we think about our surgeon. We think about what our surgeon's doing. We think about the person who's doing the colonoscopy slightly embarrassedly, but you think, mm, yeah, I know what they're doing. But we don't really think about the person who takes away, in fact, the part of ourselves that makes us ourself and who's the one who keeps us alive during the process and whose job it is to put us into a chemical coma that takes us part of the way towards death and then brings us back out. Oh. That's what anaesthesia is. Wow. The book concludes with you recovering from your own back surgery and there's a great line I do not wake so much as emerge wings of pain sprouting from my shoulder blades which I think gives a flavour of the it's a very literary book in many ways and it's also a memoir in which you use the, the relationship I guess between anaesthesia death and memory to explore issues in your own life so maybe you can tell us a little bit about that what did studying about anaesthesia tell you about your own life? Uh I think in, in, in a sense it told me as much as it told me about anaesthesia in that there was a lot more going on than I, I liked to think. Um, what I found with this book was I, I set out thinking I was being a journalist and thinking that I was researching and, and I thought I would do it in, in a nice, elegant, literary sort of way and that I'd interview interesting people and drag them into my book. But I, what, I, what I didn't realise was how much of myself I would end up dragging through the book too, as, as well as my poor family and really anyone else who came anywhere near me. <laughs> um, but in particular, you know, I kept on trying to make it one sort of book and it kept on making it, uh, announcing to me it was another sort of book and part, one of the ways it announced it to, to me was that I had very, very disturbing and weird dreams while I was while I was researching this, and and really upsetting dreams. And um, and I, you know, I started to wonder about my own unconsciousness, and and I started to wonder, oh, did something maybe happen to me during one of my my anaesthetic procedures? Uh, could it be that there's you know that I've got unconscious memories of things that are disturbing me now? And and that's one of the thing one one of the areas in the book that I, I really explore a lot. And people tend to sort of focus on the the whole, oh, someone was someone was awake during their anaesthetic. Mm. That's that's hideous and terrifying. And and you know and it it it, it can be. I, it doesn't have to be, but it really can be. But there's all these other levels that are fascinating to me. There, there's people who wake during anaesthetics, but don't remember anything about it afterwards. That happens a lot. Uh, there's an anaesthetist in, in England who, who actually puts blood pressure cuffs around the wrists of uh, anaesthetised patients so that they can still move. And then he squeezes their hand while they're... Or he, puts, he holds their hand while they're unconscious, and well, supposedly unconscious, and says, you know, um, Jenny, if you can hear me, I want you to squeeze my hand. And I went and witnessed one of these surgeries. <gasps> and... It was extraordinary because she did. And and he, he sort of, you know, it was like that the, the little system was one squeeze, you know, squeeze my hand once if you're if you're awake uh, and then squeeze my hand. I can't quite remember, but then squeeze my hand, you know, twice if you're, maybe once if you're comfortable and twice if you're in pain. And, um, you know, his first experiment, he had to stop halfway through because so many of the women were saying, hello, I'm awake, I'm in pain. But not one of those women remembered afterwards. So you've got that kind of whole thing that, that it's like, well, what what is happening there? And, and anaesthetists are, you know, there's a group of anaesthetists who are fascinated in this and are trying to work out what, what what's going on. But also there's evidence that even when people are quite clearly unconscious that they can still learn things we can still learn information under anesthesia we can they can do they can read us really boring words while we're anesthetized and when we come out the other end again we don't remember having learned them but they can do these kind of you know like word association tests and things that that show and it's not a it's not a big effect but it shows that people actually um have on some level taken in this information and you know so for me one of the big questions is well is there other information that we take in uh, and does it matter? Mm. Oh, wow. You do write about the centrality of um, anaesthesia to modern medicine, the descriptions of what surgery was like before anaesthesia, a little bit like one of those Saw movies. Given the centrality of it, what do you think needs to happen or how, how can this experience be 
improved or made safer? Well, look again, again and I, you know, I, I'm I'm not a doctor, I'm I'm not a scientist, but the, the thing that really became clear for me that is, is that uh, communication is really, really important, and it's still something that uh, I, I, th- I think the profession uh, struggles with, much less so now than than it did. But there's a lot of evidence that you know people who wake up under anaesthetic, particularly if they're paralysed, uh, often are terribly, terribly frightened because no one's actually told them that this might happen and doctors don't tell them it might happen because they don't want to scare them but the problem is if you wake up and you're paralyzed uh, people start having very catastrophic thoughts Uh, people think for instance that their spinal cord's been cut or they might think some people think they've died and the level of um, post-traumatic shock uh, 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 disorder that comes out of some of those experiences is really high even if you're not in pain so uh, you know to me communication is really central and also I think it's one of those things that happens when you've got someone on an operating table they look dead Um, I think it's difficult to Remember, I think you have to make a conscious effort to remember that this is, you know, a living, breathing person. Um, they're also your client. They're, they're paying you to do this. And so, you know, I would say uh, talk really respectfully. Not, and, and most anaesthetists do. Some, some don't. And sometimes they get caught out saying terrible things and sometimes they get sued for it. But I, I think there's an embarrassment about the idea that you might, um, as, as some anaesthetists do, but, you know, call your, your patient by their name, even if they appear to be unconscious. Um, speak kindly to them, communicate with them, because all of these things, um, you know, there, there's, there, there's, there's enough evidence that some of that might go through uh, and there's so much not known about what goes in that I would say surely that's a really good starting point. The book is Anesthesia, The Gift of Oblivion and the Mystery of Consciousness. It's published by text. The author is Kate Cole Adams, to whom we've been speaking. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks. This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. You're listening to Breakfasters here on Triple R with Jeff Geraldine and Sarah. The latest in Black Ink's quarterly essay series is titled The Long Goodbye, Coal, Coral and Australia's Climate Deadlock. Its author is Anna Crean. She's joining us now in the studio. Welcome to Breakfasters. Hey, thanks for having me. It's a great pleasure. In the essay, you begin first by going to the Great Barrier Reef yourself. Now, over the last period, we've heard a lot of different information about coral bleaching and how severe it is. What is the state of the reef at the moment? Uh, from my personal experience or the actual state? Of the-, <laughs> <laughs> the actual state. The actual state. Well, it's... From the government's own agency, the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park Authority, they do a major report every five years. So from since the 2009 report, their consensus has been the Great Barrier Reef is in poor condition and is in decline and will continue to decline in the face of unchecked climate change. So that's not like... That's not a conservation group. That's not Greenpeace. That's a government agency who have said this in their major reports. And with those reports, you have, say, for example, Greg Hunt, when he was the environment minister, he was, you know, he's, he's been briefed repeatedly over these reports. And yet he goes around and rallies up um, all the countries who are part of the UNESCO World Heritage Committee and manages to make sure that Australia is not put on the... Uh, the Greater Barrier Reef is not put on the endanger list, So it's co- which is con- complete contrast to what the government agency's own reports say. A lot of people have been kind of astonished about how laissez-faire the reaction to the bleaching events have been. When mm. you went to the reef, what was the response to people who... Uh, engaged in the tourism industry to, to all of this debate? Uh, um, sadly, the it does feel as though up in the northern regions the debate has become quite uh, knee-jerk. Uh, so you have, you have some tourist operators who are just petrified of talking about the bleachers because they don't want to, you know, they don't want to see their business take a hit in any way. Other tourism operators are you know, can see the horizon if nothing is done and realises that they won't just take a hit to the hip pocket, their entire business 
will not exist, uh, are beginning to really fight and try and rally up support um, for protecting the reef. But uh, Queensland state government is heavily entrenched in the coal business. So to the point that they are willing to risk their most, one of their most sustainable and reliable assets. And so the reef, again, the federal government released a study in 2013 uh, that revealed that the reef provides 69,000 jobs a year. And you see the Queensland state government consecutively completely ignore that information and I don't really know what they're thinking when they... Can they imagine what would happen to Queensland if they lose 69,000 jobs? Uh, and there is, there is actually a real huge job problem in Queensland. And to risk the reef would just... I, I, can't, I really can't imagine how the state could come back from that. Mm. Uh, sitting um, here in, in Melbourne, you kind of... You have this picture in your mind you, I, like I kind of sit here and think how do they not see it whereas you kind of talk about um you write about how there's um the sense of advertising there the ads that they're on tv mm. and the way they kind of spin it you see the front pages of you know the papers like you know when the Adani mine is yes. gets gets up and they're like it's you know it's that classic ten thousand jobs mm. are they just being are they Would not wink. getting the information yeah. that I mean you consider Labor leaders Bill Shorten's recent ad about you know jobs first for Australians the rest of Australia wasn't meant to see that ad that was meant for Australia for Queenslanders mm-hmm. and it was just a group of mainly white people it was totally aimed at a Queensland sort of demographic um, uh, minority marginal seats. So in 2012, a commercial has been running on Queensland screens from Adani saying 10,000 jobs, uh, $22 billion um, back into the Queensland state. And, you know, obviously on along with that, there's pictures of hospitals and, and schools. And so Queenslanders have this sort of shaky, scared feeling that if they don't support Adani and opening up the Galilee Basin, that, you know, their, li- their life is going to disappear from underneath them, They're the perks that we all take for granted. Um, but it's, it's a complete falsity and it's been proven so in the Queensland Land Court um, when under oath Jerome Farah, who is Adani's own hand-picked consultant, said that the number of jobs that of 10,000 was extreme and unrealistic. And the figure that he came up with, which the Adani coal mine will provide, is 1,464 jobs. That is so not 10,000 jobs. Okay, if this is the case, why isn't this information, why isn't the government interested in sharing this information and taking a realistic view? What's their interest right now? It's a difficult... It's hard. To, it's it's when you say it out loud, you feel like you're a conspiracy theorist. Totally, <laughs> yeah, you do. You feel like you're one of those people who said we didn't land on the moon. Yeah, tin hat. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, what, we have a captured political system, um, and it's especially in the Queensland state, they have come to rely on royalties and revenue from coal seam gas wells and from coal mining. And they have locked in promises and spending. And so basically this money has become part of their budget and they can't afford, well, they think they can't afford to cut it out because that would involve a popularity hit in a way. Mm. Um, so, but as a result, you how that you can't have independent monitoring or regulation or even assessment processes when the assessor, the government, is dependent on the royalties and the revenue that the project will bring. Also, the Queensland state has spent over the past decade over $10 billion on coal-related infrastructure. So they want to get back what they've spent. Mm. And the former Premier, Premier Campbell, um said, you know, as Queensland's in the business of coal, if you want good hospitals, if you want good schools, we need to support coal. The Queensland Treasury said the exact opposite the next, the following year, saying as a result of spending on coal-related infrastructure, schools, 
hospitals are all suffering. Yeah, mm. right. Um, this essay is also an engagement with the broader energy debate about which we are also hearing completely mm. different things. So after the power blackout in South Australia, yeah. we heard some major voices in the media and politics saying that renewable energy was not reliable when the wind stopped blowing, when the sun stopped shining, you couldn't depend on it, therefore we needed coal. That's right. What's your take on that? Uh, so before South Australians had even begun the clean-up, um, after the statewide blackout, you had Barnaby Joyce. Couldn't wait to get out of the out of the blocks to start uh, taking a dig at the wind turbines, uh, at the renewable sector, at the state premier, Jay Reverell. And that just increased throughout the day, even though the initial report from the Australian regulator um, said uh, up until now we only know that a tornado, a cluster of tornadoes, ripped 23 transmission towers out of the ground. But Barnaby Joyce or his cohort ignored that information and just kept going on with renewables. But there is there is definitely a, a dysfunctionality with the electricity grid and that's got nothing to do with renewables. It's got to do with the fact that we have an inert, uh, completely a complete vacuum of policy from our politicians who haven't put any incentive down in place for investment into the grid. Uh, they have not introduced any schemes. Every time there is a scheme, it gets taken down, say, by our lovely bloke and um, Tony Abbott. So, uh, yes, there's a huge problem with the grid. It's got nothing to do with renewables. It's got to do with our state of politics. So there's been a couple of polls that have come out recently saying uh, increasingly Australian people want the government to invest in renewables, even if that means that we need to take money from somewhere else to do mm. so. Uh, the Nationals have been losing seats to the Greens in parts of well, rural, the New South, rural New South Wales. Mm. Why then, what is Barnaby Joyce's interest then in in chase, chasing this kind of like anti-renewable line when you even have some of their traditional farmers in places like, I don't know, around Byron Bay and mm. stuff moving over to the Greens? Well, the National Party isn't the party of the farmers anymore. It's not the far party of the rural sector anymore. It's the party of the resource sector and its yeah. major sponsor is... Uh, Hancock Prospecting, which is owned by Gina Reinhardt. Barnaby Joyce wouldn't have probably wouldn't have gotten the seat in his own um, in his own area if it wasn't for substantial funding from Gina Reinhardt. Uh, and again, that sounds like I'm again I don't believe in the man on the moon, <laughs> but it's it's completely true. And um, Gina, there's this. Uh, there was a leaked email to journalist Paul Cleary which showed that a project of Gina Reinhardt's and Krishna Reddy, her um, Indian billionaire uh, business partner, was um, going through the assessment process with the Greensland state to start digging up coal at the Galilee Basin where Adani is also proposing a mine. And this leaked email shows a state environment department worker talking to a federal department worker saying, well, uh, Hancock Prospecting brought in 22 experts today to discuss the report before the report had even been finalised. So you can imagine this this huge, um, this, that's an incredible influence, yeah. 22 experts to discuss their assessment before the report had even been finished. Wow. So you imagine 22 people in a room. You, this is not... This is not facts and stuff. This is this is pressure. Yeah. This is a, a, a show of weight, a show of influence. And, you know, and there's a reason why by slip of the tongue the resource sector caused the assessment process, the approvals process. Yeah. Uh, you say the main factor pushing up electricity prices uncertain, is uncertainty. That's the argument that Alan Finkel has made in his most um, yes. recent report. It seems now, though, that the Abbott wing of the Liberal Party is going to torpedo that report. Are you surprised? Oh, Abbott's just... What is Abbott? He, <laughs> um, he's been doing this. He, this he, he, that was a winner for him when he was opposition leader. He and he's going to keep trying to ride that wave. I mean, remember when he was tabling bills and flapping them around, saying so and so, John Doe's bill's gone up, and blah de blah blah. Um, even then, he knew why John Doe's uh, bill was going up, but he chose not to say why. He blamed it on the carbon tax. He blamed it on wind turbines and that kind of thing. But the reality is, 
um, bills were going up because of sort of uh, pretty substandard regulation of energy retailers. Uh, energy retailers over the past decade spent $45 billion on what people call gold plating infrastructure, so making new wires and poles, making brand new substations that weren't necessary and then charging the cost plus a little extra onto consumers. It's $45 billion, a cost that was passed on to consumers, mostly in Queensland and New South Wales. Uh, there's a substation in Newcastle that was built um, to the tune of $30 million or something. I can't, can't quite remember what, uh, how much that cost. It's not even connected to the grid. It's just sitting there, but people in New South Wales are paying for that. Oh, dear. The, we're talking about the latest quarterly essay. It's titled The Long Goodbye, Coal, Coral and Australia's Climate Deadlock. The author is Anna Crane. She's been in the studio with us. Thanks so much. Thank you. You're listening to the best bits of The Breakfasters from 3RRR.